Hello, and welcome to the DMV Business Show, a weekly show where we get to meet local business and community leaders in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. They get to impact their story and how they got there. You can expect to hear advice and learn about their journey and how they went from point A to point B. My name is Odo Sevilla, and I'm a commercial real estate advisor in the local DC, Maryland, and Northern Virginia area. I have been very fortunate to have worked with many amazing entrepreneurs and executives, from startup founders to international Fortune 500 companies. And one of the things I love about what I do is I get to form these great relationships with some interesting people. I get to know them and I learn about how it all started. And I love hearing a good business story. When I'm not working in commercial real estate, I just also happen to be the host of this show. So please enjoy and welcome to the DMV Business Show. Hello everyone, welcome to the DMV Business Show. I'm your host, Odo Sevilla, and today our special guest is Sophia Maroon. Sophia is the founder and CEO of So Fine Food LLC that produces Dress It Up dressing. Welcome to the show, Sophia. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So as I mentioned before we hit the record button, I, I like to get the audience to get to know you as a person a little bit better. Are you originally from the DC, Maryland, Northern Virginia area? I am. I'm one of those rarities that was born and raised in Washington, DC. Oh, that's great. Okay, so DC, okay. Where, where in DC did you grow up? I grew up in Georgetown. Okay. My, um, my father had, uh, was a photographer based in Georgetown and, um, and, and he sort of prided himself as being, not being at all part of the political community, but being part of the, the arts community. Um, and, uh, and so we had, a, we had a nice mix of, of politics and art in our house because he often photographed politicians. So it was, it was not a totally typical DC existence, um, but uh, DC in the 70s. Okay, that's great. So how were you growing up in Georgetown? What, what were you into? I was, I was pretty typical. I was a really athletic uh, teenager. I played sports at school and, and um, we lived just around the corner from Rose Park. And so, uh, so that was sort of the main thing of our life was going over to Rose Park after school and playing pickup tennis or, or just running around. It was, uh, I mean, it's funny because Georgetown at the time wasn't Georgetown the way it is now. It was, it was a little bit, um, uh, I don't know. I, I, it felt like growing up in the city, like inner city city. <laughs> it, it was a little rougher than what the Georgetown it is today. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least it felt that way. I mean, it, it, it really, like there was no Georgetown park. There wasn't really much of a, of a, um, uh, I mean, it turned, it became that way in the, in while I was growing up, but, um, but really it, at the time it didn't feel precious at all the way that I sort of feel like it is now. I can definitely believe that. I, I remember, I grew up in DC as well, but I grew up in sort of the Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant area near mm -hmm. the, the zoo there, going that area of the zoo. And very different uh, to where it is today. I mean, even before then we didn't have, this was pre-metro station of Columbia Heights. Um, so it was a little rougher uh, then. So I'm happy and I'm sure it's a lot of neighborhoods like that in DC have transitioned to where they are now. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like all of DC has transitioned a lot, but but we were, you know, I was living there before Georgetown. Like I remember when they were building Georgetown Park, when they were putting in the metro stations. Um, I mean, it, it, it just, it does, when I go back, my mom still lives in the house that I grew up in. And, um, and I just sort of go back and it's so funny because, you know, we like the parks are all beautiful and they used to not have grass. And, uh, <laughs> and the, um, I mean, the farmer's market at the at Rose Park now, it used to be kind of, I don't know, just, it was, it was a really nice mix of people that, um, that, uh, it felt really neighborhoody, and I'm sure it still does now. I mean, I, I'm not saying that it doesn't, but um, but it it also uh, it it didn't grow up feeling like I was privileged. I, I grew up thinking um, uh, that I was just lucky to live where I did. Yeah, you lived in the city. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I got to ride the bus to school every morning, and my you know, and and uh, with my brother and sister, and we were on you know we were on the G two, and then onto the thirty, and. Uh, uh, losing our bus tokens <laughs> oh you still remember the names <laughs> yeah yeah you missed it you're in trouble <laughs> that's true I, I cannot remember the metro bus i would have to take to to go to my school i went to oyster elementary school yeah um, yeah where, where did you end up attending i was at ncs okay so i was i was uh um it was just straight up wisconsin avenue from, okay. from my house so you, you did all of elementary, junior high, high school in Georgetown? Yeah, I was what you call a lifer at, um, up on the Cathedral Close. I went to Bovar, which is the elementary school. And then I went to, to NCS from um, fourth grade through 12th grade. And then for college, I just wanted to get as far away as I possibly could uh, without necessarily having to learn another language. So I went to college in the, in the United Kingdom. Oh, the and, UK. Okay. Yep. Spent four years in Scotland, which was, um, you know, it was great. It was great to get away from, from my little cocoon. What did you study in Scotland? I studied anthropology, social anthropology, and art history. Um, okay. and, and I came back to D.C. and started working at the World Bank because and, and, I was interested in, in development and, and figured World Bank was a great place to work. But I always had this undercurrent of art. And... Um, uh, no doubt influenced by my father. Um, but uh, while working at the World Bank, I, we were doing reports and writing up these uh, reports about, about um, communities and projects that, that the bank was operating. And, um, and somebody did a film about one of the reports that we wrote. And the film was much more interesting than the report, than our 30 page white paper. Uh, and so from there, I actually transitioned into filmmaking. And after, uh, after a couple years at the bank, um, did an apprenticeship and started working in documentary film and, uh, and then did that for the next 20 years. Wow. Was that all still here locally in the DC area? No, I, so DC is great for documentary because we had National Geographic and also the Discovery Channel had just sort of put their, their headquarters in Bethesda. Um, and, uh, and there were a lot of independent film companies that were producing shows for public television. And so I worked here for a couple of years, but then uh, the New York called and, and I went up and worked in New York for several years for big networks. Like I was at ABC and, and we did a lot of shows for, again, for Discovery and for um, uh, A&E um, and also PBS. Okay, so it was mostly shows, not movies? Yeah, it was a long format documentary. 
Long okay. format, like so the like the the remember the PBS shows that would go on for several several nights. Yes. <laughs> uh, kind of the golden age of documentary filmmaking was was this little time where we would spend a year doing an hour long show about one topic, and it was I I say it's akin to getting a PhD. Um, because you would really dive into that subject for a year and, and get to know everything about it. And, um, and it was fantastic. And then um, when, you know, what slowly happened is that reality television took over. And so the budgets for that hour of television got smaller and smaller and smaller until when we used to have like a million dollars for an hour of TV, we had about 70,000 and we had, we didn't have a year in which to produce it. We had six to seven weeks. And, um, and it, it, it took a hit. <laughs> I can imagine, wow. Were, were you mostly based out of New York City or would you have to travel due to work? I got to travel a lot. That was one of the, the bonuses of the job. Like I think I mean, filmmaking is, is certainly a exciting, interesting, intellectually stimulating career. Um, and then you add to that that you get to travel and you get to meet incredible people and and especially when when I was at ABC you know we were we interviewed Queen Noor, Harrison Ford, Richard Branson, uh, George W. Bush was running for president at the time and and we got to go and interview him and his entire family and so I mean that was the one of the greatest parts of the job was that your passport was always in your bag and you didn't quite know where you were going to be during the course of the week and um, and so it's a nice way to live. Yeah yeah you're always traveling. That's great. Your, your, your role there, Sophia, was it actually doing what when, when it comes to filmmaking? So I sort of ascended the ladder. I started as a production assistant, um, which means that you, you stand by the lights and, and <laughs> make sure they don't fall over and you carry everybody's bags wherever they need to go. Um, and I'd had lots of training in this because when my father was doing his shoots, the children were called upon first to be the assistants. I'm one of four and we were, we were frequently woken up early in the morning and said, come along, come along, we're gonna go and, and do a shoot. Um, if, his, if his assistant called in sick, he, he woke up one of the kids. So, um, so I started as a production assistant and then, and then became an associate producer, um, which is where you're setting up all the interviews and you're, you're kind of um, writing the questions that the, that the interviewer then goes and asks. Um, and then I, I became a producer where I got to ask the questions and I got to write the script. And, um, and I did that for about, I think three, three or four years, um, maybe even longer. I can't quite remember, but, uh, but yeah, ultimately I became a producer. Wow, that's great. What was your favorite part of the job? The people that you get to meet. I mean, honestly, learning so learning about a subject inside and out, and then being able to sort of figure out who are the who are the people that we want to talk to about this. How are we going to tell this story? And I worked on an amazing film about the GI Bill, which was the and we we were looking just at the GI Bill after World War II, and the impact that that piece of legislation had on the the those who had served uh, in in the war. My father was one of them. Um, but you have this generation of men and women who wouldn't have gone to college, wouldn't have had the careers that they had um, without the GI Bill. And so then we got to interview the people who, who, um, whose lives had been changed and whether it was just somebody who went on to become a, a pharmacist or a Nobel Prize winning physicist, 
we got um, we got to interview them so that I I met Walter Matthau, um, uh, Martin Pearl, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Um, uh, I don't know, the list was amazing. It's Rod Steiger, like I sort of remember the Hollywood people, but then also uh, an OBGYN um, named Jerry Naples from Florida who delivered just thousands of babies in Levittown during during uh, the 1950s. And, and so just, you know, it could be just an average story or an extraordinary story. And we got to tell it. That's great. So you did this for 20 years, you said? I did it from, let's see, I probably started in the, I did it from 95 until, well, it, I did it off and on because I, so I stopped working full-time when my first child was born. So I probably did it for about 15 years uh, until he was born. And then um, I have three children and what I did was I would sort of navigate a year of motherhood and then a year of working and then another year of motherhood um, or her new baby would arrive and I'd take a year off. Um, but just depending on the project, if it was, if it was a project I wanted to do, um, then I would dive right into it. And, um, and then I would take a year off and kind of uh, spend time at home again. And so, I mean, that was one of the nice things about being a freelancer was that I was able to, to pop in and pop out um, in a way that suited my priorities as well. Sure. Did things change once you had children? But my next question was going to be, how did you do with a family and all the traveling that this role entailed? Yeah, well, that was one of, that was one of, that's why I now sell salad dressing. <laughs> uh, I, the travel, so the thing about our schedules is that, you know, pre-production and post-production last a lot longer than production. So that it was only while we were in production that I was traveling. And, um, and I was able to, to kind of, I mean, it was a very different sort of project that I would work on from previously. Previously, I would gravitate toward the, the topics that would take me everywhere. And, and once I had the kids, I would gravitate toward the projects that were a little bit more, um, a little bit more historical, probably more time spent in the archives than uh, spent on the road. Um, but, uh, but I think that with the last job that I worked on, it was actually a company that was based in, in Canada and I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. And, and so I would go up to Canada once a month and I felt like she was coming along with me for the ride. But, um, but obviously after she was born, I realized that this wasn't gonna, this wasn't gonna work anymore. Leaving two children behind was different from leaving three children. It was a little more than their, their father sure. could handle. <laughs> I understand. So where did dressing it up dressing come about in all this? So dress it up dressing was born when, um, when my daughter was uh, about two years old. And, um, and I, I was hankering to go back to work and I wanted to do something that I could do while, while still um, taking care of my children. And I had, I was sort of thinking about a couple different careers. <clears throat> um, something that would, filmmaking, filmmaking was, it, it, the parts that I enjoyed, I was no longer able to do. So I wanted a change. And, um, and as I was looking for something to do, my brother, my little brother had always had this idea that our mother's salad dressing was so good that you could sell it. And we all kind of dismissed him because he's the youngest. And, um, and so uh, as, since I was looking for something else, this was just one of many ideas that was on the table. And, um, and as I began to 
think about it more seriously, I was giving salad dressing to friends and they were sharing it with their friends. And before long, I was running this little black market salad dressing <laughs> empire out of my out of my basement. And I would deliver salad dressing in empty clementine boxes just around the neighborhood. And um, and uh, and fortunately, somebody I would pick up the clementine boxes every week at Whole Foods. And, um, and the guy that would give me the boxes each week one day said, listen, I've got some bad news. Clementine season is ending and we're not gonna have any boxes anymore. But tell me, what do you use them for? Because maybe we have something else that you can use instead. Because I was picking up 21, 40 boxes a week, like whatever they had, I was taking it. And, um, and so, so yeah, I thought, I'm sorry, is this in New York or is this in DC? Where, where is this? Oh, happening? sorry, no, we're back in DC. So, oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah. I'm, I've left out that part. I moved back to DC um, right after my first child was born. Okay. Um, was that just for personal reasons or with work or? It was, so my husband had gotten a position down in DC for a year and, um, and my father at the time was ill and it was, it was clear that he, we, he wasn't gonna be with us for much longer. And so it seemed like a, a nice time to be home. Sure. Um, and I was pregnant and expecting my first. And so having a, a new first grandchild seemed like a nice, a nice thing for my mother too. And so we moved down um, for that year. And after, after the year was up with, grandmother in town and my father was now deceased and and it just it was nice to stay it was really nice being around grandmothers and to have have the help that they offer and and also just living in Manhattan uh, is expensive and um and we could live a little bit better down here than we could in New York so um so it was it was just a confluence it wasn't ever a decision it was like this little you know we'll take a baby step let's go down for six months ah let's extend it to a year and and now it's 18 years later and I'm still here <laughs> that's good you went back home I did I did it was never my intention but uh but I did it <laughs> Yeah. Is your husband? It's not my intention to start a salad dressing company, but I did it. Like, I think, <laughs> is your is your husband from DC as well, or no? Yeah, he he is. Okay. Um, yeah, we're no longer together, but uh, but he's he was born and raised here too, and so we had two grandmothers in town. Okay, all right. Well, that, that's always good when you have that additional extra set of hands and help. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> I, I have three myself, so I completely understand. Yeah, and I think that the idea of like grabbing that that thirty six pack of diapers and sticking it in the back of your car is so much more appealing than than like hauling it on the bus and and you know carrying your child at the same time. And there wasn't diapers dot com like Amazon wasn't delivering diapers. It, it was nineteen years ago. So you know, maybe maybe New York would be more appealing now, but I still think you can't beat grandmothers. Yeah. So you you were saying you were a you were in Whole Foods and you couldn't get the anymore where the clementines were the the, the baskets right? Right. The the little boxes. I usually have one around. Um, yeah. So the the what happened and this is sort of one of those fortuitous moments. But but when um, the so when the guy from Whole Foods whose name is Mark and who I didn't know it but was the store manager he. Uh, he said, what do you do with these boxes? And I told him I make salad dressing. And he said, well, if you make salad dressing, why haven't you shared it with us? I'm like, well, cause you're Whole Foods and, and I'm, I'm making, you know, In my basement or something. Yeah, this is, <laughs> and he's like, well, let me try it. I mean, you're using up a lot of boxes. Let me try this dressing. So I brought him some dressing and, and, um, 
and he tried it. And he's like, you know, I worked in a restaurant for years and every night this is what we were trying to make. And sometimes we got it and sometimes we didn't. It's like, but you nailed it. You nailed the balance of the flavors, the emulsion. He's like, it's incredible. We don't sell anything like this and we should. And um, I was like, yes, perhaps you ought to. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't know a thing about what it would take to start a food business. And so he said, if you can make it properly, we'll put it on our shelves. It was one store, the Friendship Heights store, just uh, on the Maryland DC border. So I gave him, um, so I, I said, give me a minute. And I then went and called everybody I know and sort of said, does anybody know anything about starting a food business? And, um, and I have a friend who has a farm in Rappahannock and, um, and she knows a chutney company that was nearby. And so she put me in touch with the Virginia Chutney Company and they gave me like a, a primer on what it takes. You want a co-packer, you, wanna, you want to um, uh, own your recipe, you want to like pack in glass, pack in six packs. Do, they just told me everything that, that I would need to know to get going. And then, um, and then I started finding a manufacturer that could make it. And that was probably like a, a maybe even a six month process to, to learn about the licensing and, and what I needed to have and what was legal and what's not legal and then a label and what you have to put on your label. And, um, and so fortunately, Whole Foods paperwork takes a really long time to get processed. So I had that time in which to, um, in which to, to make the product. And I found a manufacturer in Pennsylvania and, um, and produced our first batch of dressing. I, it took $6,000 um, to make, I think we made 100 cases of four different flavors of dressing. And in addition to sort of finding the place where I could make it, I also had to figure out, what am I gonna call it? What are the labels gonna look like? All of, all of the things that sort of, I love the most because that's where the art comes back in. And so I, um, in order to come up with a name, I had a dinner party and I invited a bunch of friends over. Friends who I sort of figured were the kind of people that would tell me the truth. And, and so I told them, I'm thinking of starting a salad dressing company and you're eating it. What do you think about it? <laughs> and then also, what do you think I should call it? And we, we came up with names all night long and it was a big, long, boozy dinner. And, uh, and, and my friend Jim, said dress it up dressing about seven o'clock and by midnight and and however many bottles of wine later we we didn't have anything better but we had a list this long of names and so I settled on dress it up and then from that um I figured well actually before then I had I thought it's dressing so we can put the the dressing in bottles that are um shaped like iconic dresses so that, you know, cause I was thinking of that Aunt Jemima where it's, it's Aunt Jemima and like, we'll do bottles like that and it will look so beautiful. And we'll have like, you know, a, all the classic Marilyn Monroe dresses and, and things like that. That was before I learned how expensive it was to, to do that kind of a custom bottle. Um, so after I did learn that, we decided to, to just make the dressing um, Make it about clothing, make it about like food. It's, it's you're dressing up your salad. You're making your vegetables more delicious. So, so let's do this combination of food and fashion. And I tapped a friend of mine who is a fashion illustrator to draw the designs and, and kind of back to this being, I think this is sort of the Washington story is that 
Um, it's a woman who I used to babysit sit when I was a little girl and she lived three blocks away from me in Georgetown. And, um, and I, before she was born, I walked her mother's dogs. And then once she was born, I babysat. And so I asked her to, to draw just some girls that we could use on the labels. And, um, and then my sister is a graphic designer and my sister and I took her drawings and then turned all the clothing into food so that a glass of champagne is a dress and a beet is, a, is on your belt and a, a raspberry becomes a ring. Um, we have uh, like the red wine vinaigrette, her dress, her shirt is made entirely out of basil and she's got this big tomato on her belt because basil and tomato are, are the best with the red wine vinaigrette. Um, and so they became these kind of fashion fusion food uh, diagrams that I think are, it's like a game of where's Waldo, like you can, you know, what do you see when you look at them? The apple cider vinaigrette is based on my hairdresser and her skirt is, are these apple slices and her necklace is radishes and she has a big zucchini flower in her hair. Um, and so we could, we could get really creative thinking about, about that play on words with dressing and, and dressing it up. Um, and so, uh, so that was how salad dressing first came into being. So you, you say your first batch was a hundred cases? Yeah, we did a hundred cases for, for $6,000. And, um, and I started selling them at the farmer's market in Bethesda at Central Farm Market. And, um, and that was the first time I ever was giving the salad dressing to somebody who wasn't my friend and wasn't my mother and didn't know me. And, um, and that first day, I think I sold like, $600 worth of dressing. And I took my kids out to dinner. I'm like, we've got it made. We're, <laughs> <Jackpot. laughs> We're going to be rich. <laughs> it turns out that there's a real bump when it's the first time you show up at the farmer's market, oh, <laughs> and, okay. but it's a beautiful sunny day. And then it can be really different when it's raining <laughs> or when you're there week after week after week. But what it enabled me to do is that I got to meet people and I got to give it to them and have them try it and see what their reception was to the dressing and, and see, what do you think about it? How do you want to use it? And people would give me ideas that, you know, I put it on, I put it on, on a corn and tomato salad, or I put it on, on roasted asparagus. Um, one guy came in and he's like, I cooked bacon in it the other night. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> sort of the antithesis of what salad dressing is supposed to be used for, but go ahead. I'm sure it was delicious. <laughs> but our first, we had four flavors at the time and it was red wine, apple cider, champagne, and chocolate. And the chocolate was like this, this strong chocolate balsamic um, that was, that was more like a mole than a, than a chocolate dressing, much to the disappointment of children. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was incredible. Um, however, I think also the world wasn't ready for chocolate salad dressing yet. So that one got replaced with a blackberry vinaigrette. And those were the four dressings that we sold for the first five years. The original recipe from your mother, is it completely different or to where it is today and, and the whole line? No, not at all. In fact, okay. it's exactly the same. I mean, okay. I think there's, there's one little ingredient um, that I took out, which is that she used a little bit of nor seasoning in her dressing, which is pure MSG. And so it's, it's neither good, it's both not healthy and it's banned by, by Whole Foods. It's one of those things that you're not allowed to, 
to have in your food, but her recipe called for three drops. Okay. So I took it out and it was, it was pretty hard to miss it. Um, but the recipe stayed exactly the same. And I think that that's one of the things where I was really fortunate is that a lot of people, you have a homemade recipe. And then when you, when you start making it, uh, and you scale it up, you have to change the ingredients or the ingredients are hard to come by, but the whole sort of, I think the, the reason that dress it up was attractive to whole foods in the first place is that the ingredients were completely different from what you typically found in salad dressing. We used olive oil, vinegar, mustard, and garlic, nothing else. Wow. Most salad dressing, the first ingredient is water. Second ingredient is usually vinegar. Sugar is way up there. And then for the oils, they're using canola or safflower or one of the highly processed oils. Like even avocado oil is super high processed. And canola oil is, is made from rapeseed and was originally used as an industrial oil. So nutritionally void and, um, and not even really much taste to it either. And so when it's such a simple formula to begin with, it's really easy to scale it up because it's just ratios. And as long as you keep the ratios relatively the same, you're, you're gonna still have the same product. And as far as adding that flavor, Sophia, you would just add a, a, the change there and then that would change the flavor? What do you mean? Adding MSG? Yes. Well, oh, that MSG, was out. That was taken out, right? I took it out. I took okay. it out. Yeah. Okay. My mother's recipe called for three drops. And, and so those three drops, I could probably make you one dressing with three drops of MSG in it and one without. And, and I don't know if you could tell the difference. Okay. Okay. There's still a lot of vinegar and a lot of mustard and a lot of garlic in our dressings that I think are overpower those three drops. So for the first few years, you were in farmer's market, and this is pre-getting into Whole Foods, right? So Whole Foods was my first customer. They were the ones oh, that said, okay. can you put this in a bottle? And I think that without Whole Foods, I wouldn't have done this. I mean, honestly, for I wasn't seeking to be a farmer's market brand. Uh, I didn't really have the luxury of being a farmer's market brand as... I had three kids at home who, um, who farmer's markets are on the weekends and they're usually early mornings. And so uh, that wasn't something that I could really do sustainably. Um, so when Whole Foods said that they would bring it in, it takes about six months between them saying yes, and then you have to do the paperwork and then you have to wait for them to do their, their resets for the category so that they said yes in April, but we didn't go on the shelves until election day, 2011. Wow. Okay. Well, 2012. It's 2012, uh, early November. That was when it first went on the shelves. Okay. And, and I still have a picture of my kids pointing to it on the shelves. So how are you doing it? This is a new business, basically startup, three children. You're telling me you're a single mother at this time, right? Or, okay. And then you're going to farmer's market, which is mostly just weekends. Yeah. So I'd have three children under the table that uh, <laughs> sitting in the shade drawing. <laughs> uh, they, um, they were, I mean, it was, it was, so that first batch, um, it was $6,000 and it wasn't, you know, that I had in savings. And so I, I used it, but for the second batch, um, which I needed uh, about four months later, I then went to, to my network of friends and I had, um, seven friends each invested $5,000 in the company. No, it wasn't an investment. It was a loan. They loaned me $5,000 each to make the second batch. And, um, and I called them my seven samurai. The seven samurai with their $35,000 enabled me to make a batch of 
that was twice the size of the first batch. And, um, and that was the, and that was a batch where we were, we, we learned a lot of things between the first batch and the second batch, because the first batch, for example, our labels were made out of paper, which um, if, if any oil gets on them, it absorbs the oil. And Mm -hmm. so after you open your salad dressing, it just looked like this oil spill on the side of the bottles so unattractive um so for the second batch we moved to to vinyl labels and we, we just learned a lot you know you learn so much as you're going along but the seven samurai were my main investors for the first um probably the first year and a half that dress it up dressing was in business that's great um so how did how did the first batch turn out in whole foods so that first batch, we, um, I was in there doing demos quite frequently, I, I'll say, but, but we sold out like that. Wow. It was gone. And I went back the next week and they put up this big side, uh, pan- like I didn't realize at the time how lucky I was to get what's called an off shelf, but they put up this big metro rack saying local, dress it up dressing. And, you know, we had rows and rows and rows of salad dressing. And so it was in one store in November um by december they'd put it in two other stores and by march we were in 14 stores all all here locally all here locally yeah so it was it was i think we went from friendship Heights from friendship heights to bethesda the river road store and to georgetown um and uh and then by march we were in tyson's and um P Street and Tenley, I mean, Rockville, it, they just started putting it in more stores because it was doing well. And, and I think that it was doing well because people were, well, there are two reasons. Um, <laughs> one isn't good. It, our dressing at the time was $10 a bottle and the average price of a bottle on the shelf was about $3. And so I think a lot of people were looking at it and saying, what, you know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and then they'd pick it up and they'd look at the ingredients and see that the ingredients were, it was this long. We had five ingredients and our competitors had 10. And so people were picking up the bottles, reading what was in it and, and then buying it because that is what made us unique. And, and so I think that, that you know, even though it wasn't necessarily a, a good thing that it was as expensive as it was, it did cause people to pay a little bit of attention to it. And then since most salad dressing is water, I mean, it's the first ingredient, it's like 50% water. Ours was $10, but it was going to last you about twice as long, if not longer than the competitor, because rather than going like this to get any flavor, you just add a little bit, toss it, and then you've got all of that flavor with just half the dressing. Wow. Did you think those two reasons are the reasons you just grew so quickly starting off with one store with Whole Foods? Um, yeah, I think that Mark from Whole Foods was correct when he said we don't sell anything like this and we should. I think that what it revealed is that there was this real hole in the market, which was a salad dressing that replicated homemade. And, and we didn't change the recipe one little bit. I, don't, I didn't know what xanthan gum was. I didn't know what, what, why you would add sugar to a salad dressing. Um, all of these tricks that, that most of the brands are using, I didn't know any of them. I was just putting my salad dressing in the jar the same way I made it at home. And it turns out there's a real appetite for that. Now, how are you doing, Sophie, as far as getting, because, you know, when you go to the store, how how do you get known as far as the marketing? Were you doing any marketing or advertising back then, starting off? No advertising at all, but I was standing in the stores 
all day, every day while my kids were at school, handing people salads and I would, and doing the farmer's markets on the weekends. So that what we figured is that word of mouth was going to help. And, and so I had everybody, I had three kids at three different schools and the preschool, the elementary school and the middle school all knew about dress it up dressing. And, and we were, we were at every school event saying, Hey, try this, giving away free samples. I mean, anything we needed to do to, to help spread the word. And then Whole Foods was really great about supporting it as well. They've got a real initiative to support local. And so they were putting me in additional stores and when a new store opened, they had asked me to come along and, and you know, be part of the store opening so that I could tell people who were perhaps you know, new to Whole Foods um, what we had. And, and so you know, just by putting it in people's mouths, that was the way that we did marketing. We couldn't afford anything else. Literally, but very grassroots, just demoing, going from one store to another store. At, at, at this time, is it just you or do you have any help? It was just me for probably three years. And then I started being able to hire people to help me do the demos in the stores. Um, and, uh, or I would partner with other, like I'd partner with a lettuce company and we would, we would, I would use their lettuce when I did a demo. They used my dressing when, when um, they did one. And, uh, and there's just this sort of great network of, of foodies in DC and food companies. And, um, and so we, traded we kind of traded people we traded knowledge we traded like war stories <laughs> we we could so that we would have there be there were a couple women that just would do a, demos for all these different companies and while i could never support any of them single-handedly collectively we could this is great so then you scale to 14 stores locally here whole foods and then from there what happens so then they found me a distributor and and Soon after that, we, we got on the planogram, which is, uh, which is the, the architecture behind how the grocery store is laid out. And I didn't, I didn't know how to spell planogram, but, um, but they're like, no, you're on the planogram now, which meant that in the stores that had the space, we were going to be there no matter what. And, um, and that's when we realized that like, this is going to, you know, it's growing. And when I say we, it's like, it's not just me because I had so many people helping me out. I mean, so many people giving me advice and, and telling me like, all right, you should do this. You shouldn't do that. But, um, but that's when I realized, all right, we need to raise more money. Like we need to, because as the sales grow, you need to make it before you can sell it. And so you always have this huge need for cash in order to make the batch that you're selling and you recoup your, your investment over a long or shorter long period of time depending on how sales are going and so um so it was it became a necessary to raise more money and to to get more investment as we grew okay in the beginning though it was just recycling the funds from the original seven samurais right yeah okay yeah. okay and then and that worked that worked really well until you know uh, i mean at that point i wasn't I wasn't paying myself. I didn't pay myself. I don't think for about six years, but, um, but we, I could use it for reinvestment and then, um, and that was working really well. But then we had a batch that, um, that froze on route between Pennsylvania and DC. And, um, and what, what I didn't realize, well, I knew that olive oil, olive oil solidifies it at, about 53 degrees, I think. And once it separates, 
then the thing that made our dressing unique was that it was emulsified without any gums and starches. And once it separates, it's no longer emulsified. And so it, this whole batch that froze was ruined. I wasn't going to sell it because it, it, it was in two different phases and it looked, it didn't look like our product. And so we lost that entire batch, couldn't claim insurance against it. And, um, and that's when that recycling came to an abrupt halt. <laughs> Suddenly we didn't have the cash for the next round of production. And, um, and you're left with this choice between empty shelves or, or figuring out a way to, to pay for it. So what'd you do then? So I tried to get insurance and of course, they did not, they covered about 10% of what had been a $30,000 production. And, um, and, uh, and then I scrambled because I realized that I was going to need to not just pay for that batch, but the batch after that. And so I realized I was going to need to either take out um, much larger investment or get a loan. And so I applied for a loan from the SBA. And, um, and was able to get that. And that was in about 2014, I think, um, secured against my house. So, so a little bit of, of anxiety from that, but, um, but I took out a loan for $150,000 and with, with that then thought, okay, now we can really expand. Let's do the trade shows. Let's go and get the word out about dress it up and, um, and, and grow it beyond just just Whole Foods because sure. at that point we were in Whole Foods and like a couple other retailers but let's grow it beyond just Whole Foods and see see how we do and, and then Sophia were you Whole Foods nationally or no it's okay. just regionally just the okay. Mid-Atlantic region um, okay. and the way that Whole Foods works is that each region is completely separate and so at that point we were uh, Mid-Atlantic only and now today we're still just two regions we're not we're not national although I did just submit for the category review so I'm hoping that we can we can broaden with Whole Foods. Oh that would be amazing so right now you're in Mid-Atlantic and what's the other region? Midwest. Midwest okay. Yeah. okay. So you can at Whole Foods you can find them basically from from DC north to mid-New Jersey East, well, east of the coast, west to um, uh, Ohio, Kentucky, um, and then this Virginia, Southern Virginia border. Okay. So the, that initial 150000 from the SBA sort of just lit fire in the business and allowed it to then grow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it enabled us to grow for probably the next three years or so. Um, and this was in 2014, you said? Mm-hmm, yeah. I, I want to briefly go into a comment you just mentioned. You said for the first six years, you made zero money. Um, and that, that, that piqued my interest because nowadays with, with maybe as a short attention span, people think everything is overnight as far as success in business and life and your career, whatever, whatever you choose to go through. But you said for the first six years, nothing. Yeah, or very little. Very um, little. I think that, you know, it's really hard sometimes to be, because there are a lot, like you said, there are a lot of overnight sensations that you hear about, and, and they are often all that you hear about, but they really are the unicorns. I mean, it's not, I think that if you were to look at the successful brands that are on the shelves, and this isn't just in food, but really across 
so many different brands. It's um, there are a couple unicorns, but then most people are working really hard for a really long time. Um, and, and it's much more of the 20 year overnight success story. Yes. So I'm, I'm sure it was an easy, especially as a single mother with three children, you have this business and you probably just have enough to survive. How were you doing it those initial first couple of years? Well, that was, so I think that I could have grown the business faster um, if I didn't have this competing obligation, which was my family. Um, but I was quite happy to have that competing obligation. And so I, I liken it that I grew my business and my family side by side. And each one probably could have grown, you know, and flourished faster, uh, sooner, mm-hmm. had it just gotten gotten that one, my sole focus. Um, but by doing it side by side, like they grew up together and my kids know everything about my business. Like they, they grew up watching the business grow. And so, um, so I would have had to have forfeited one of those two things and, and this way I could do both. Um, I feel like it gave me the opportunity to be the mother that I wanted to be, to not, you know, I hadn't worked prior to, um, to, so my third child was born and I didn't work for a year and a half and, and my children were accustomed to me being home and to, to, you know, I, I picked them up from school. I took them from school. I was, I was full on mother. Um, and when my husband and I separated, the idea of my vanishing at that point, when they were already going through so much, just, there was no way I was going to do it. And so I was looking for a job that enabled me to be, to, to make my own hours and to, to be home, to be present. I mean, that's what, that's what salad dressing enabled me to do. And so I think that this has given me the ability to, to prioritize both parts of my life. Sure. Were you still doing filmmaking on the sign here or there, or was it a hundred percent focused just on salad dressing and the family? Well, so I went back to when, when I was looking for new work uh, or whatever my new job was going to be. And there, I was saying that there are a couple, couple different ideas that I was floating. What I, one of the first ones was obviously filmmaking and, um, and a production company that I worked with for years was doing this great project. And, and I went and started working with them as well. And I spent one day on the shoot and it meant leaving the house at six o'clock in the morning. I came back at about eight o'clock at night. You know, three children were in tears. The babysitter was in tears. Three seconds later, I was in tears too. Like we were all crying. I'm like, this is not going to work. This is, you know, this is 100% unsustainable with my, with my other uh, responsibilities. And so Filmmaking, like it, it came in and it went out very, very quickly. And that's why I was thinking, I have to find something else. And it has to be, um, it just has to be more flexible hours. I mean, my daughter was at school for two and a half hours, three days a week at that time. Gosh. Doesn't leave a lot of time to, to you know, go and be, be a filmmaker or be any number of things. Yeah. So Sophia, in 2014, you get this loan. It, it helps grow the business. Where are you now besides those two areas you mentioned in Whole Foods? So at that point, we were also selling to, um, to a lot of the other regional retailers like, like Mom's and, um, and Dawson's Market. I was still doing the farmer's markets. And, um, and it was, it was I'm trying to think, I think we were pitching and being well-received at, at um, 
at a lot of the different retailers we spoke to, but it just wasn't converting. And somebody from Whole Foods, the buyer from Whole Foods had um, uh, said, look, you need to get into a traditional bottle and you need to lower your price because we were selling these little pots of dressing. I'll show you. We had these little jars and the idea was that you spoon it out because it's thick and, okay. and, um, and then you toss it with, with whatever liquid is in your salad is going gonna, is gonna to be enough to, to toss it. And, um, and she said, you need to go into a traditional bottle and lower your price. And so um, in, that's, we pitched new bottles, new prices, and three new flavors in 2017 to, to Whole Foods. And, um, and we went from, they said yes to everything. They said yes, so that we now had, didn't have four SKUs, we had seven. And, um, and we proposed this new bottle, which is, is the one that we still sell today. Um, and then with that new bottle, we, we, we were much more well-received. <laughs> okay. So that, that's when we started selling to Central Market in Texas. And we, we got a bunch of small stores on the West Coast. And we just had these dedicated consumers that were all over the country, but, but really targeted for people who were looking for clean, healthy products that offered convenience without sacrificing quality. And, um, but they were, it was in these little kind of, you know, on the two coasts and a little bit online. Okay. So you are online, you're doing direct to consumer as well. Yeah, but that, it was sort of a sleepy afterthought at the time. It was, it was, you know, again, like we didn't have any money for marketing. All of our money has gone toward production almost the whole time because it's, it's that cycle is that each production run we do is bigger than the one before it. And, um, and, and so you're always a little cash strapped. Are you still producing it? You mentioned you had, you found a company in Pennsylvania. Is that where, is that what production still going on? No, we moved from them. So um, there's, uh, I mean, that was also part, like there's so many, you know. The, yes. I feel like it, it's, uh, it's truly a roller coaster, but we moved from Pennsylvania for our production to Wisconsin um, and found a great production company, uh, uh, production facility up there where they could, um, and they were huge. And I was like, well, we're going to be huge. So we need to have a huge manufacturing facility. Um, and, uh, and they, uh, they could make my product beautifully, but when we were teeny tiny, they could just slip it in when, when they had a vacancy in their schedule. And, um, and so if they ever had like a free day, they could wipe out, you know, thousand bottles for me without even thinking about it. But as we grew, it became harder and harder for them to, to slide us into their schedule. And so um, ultimately, it, we weren't big enough to be important to them. Um, and yet we were, we were too big to fit in. Um, so we then moved to a production facility in Chicago. And we've been there since, um, since 2019, making, okay. making the dressing there. So That's great. move okay. all over the country. Are most of your sales in store or how is it compared to your online sales and direct to consumers today? Well, so obviously with COVID, we've had to make a big switch to e-com. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that you know, there's, there's not a company out there that hasn't. Uh, so we still are probably about 75% retail. Um, and, and then uh, maybe 20%, 15%, uh, e-commerce and then we also have a food service component as well 
so that we're selling direct to institutions and, um, and uh, schools. We've had a partnership with DC Public Schools for a really long time. Oh, really? That's great. I, well, I, I'm, I'm a mother. Yes. And we believe healthy eating starts early. And so I actually, I mean, I live in Montgomery County and I told the Montgomery County schools, I was like, we, we will give you all the dressing you need at cost, like just whatever you need, but let me supply the salad dressing because you don't even have salad bars in half your schools and Whole Foods is well, it has bought you salad bars. And, and we want to, you know, we want to support this because my kids are going to these schools. Sure. Have they said yes? With with Maryland schools, but we had great success with DC public schools. And um, and so they've been serving our dressings for three or four years now. Okay. And it's great because you know they they have um, you know, kids like kids like vegetables. They especially like vegetables when it's served with good dressing. I mean, every every mom and dad knows that. Yeah. Uh, and so they found that the consumption of the vegetables went up when they paired it with our dressing. That's great to hear. I, I have a trouble with my my second one with uh, eating a little healthier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do too. <laughs> does, does it help to know that? <laughs> how, how old is your second one now? He's 16. Okay. Okay. Mine's uh, half that age. He's turning eight this year. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, he's still impressionable. He's not yet on the Chipotle diet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not yet. It'll come. There's nothing you can do. There's, oh, <laughs> you sure. can feed him all the salad in the world. He'll still go to a phase where all he wants to eat is Chipotle. Sophia, what would you say drives you and motivates you today? I have a lot of drivers. Number one is that I have to pay for college and I have to pay for my mortgage. And, and I think that, you know, with any startup, it's, there's a lot of temptation to quit. And I never felt like I had the luxury of quitting much as it, it might have been tempting at times. And so I'm, I'm motivated first and foremost by probably my obligations, but also because I still eat this dressing every single day. And I still believe that it is the best salad dressing on the market. And I think we offer something that none of my competitors are offering. And, um, and so I would actually say that what motivates me equally is that I, I enjoy sharing this with people because I really believe in it. <laughs> and I, I love what, what it can do, whether it's just in making it easier to make dinner for, for everybody on a weekday night or because it's, um, you know, you're having a dinner party and, and you want to serve something amazing. I think it's, it's, uh, it's easy to sell that way. Yeah, definitely. I understand you said now production and manufacturing is happening in Chicago, but having the right team members are surrounding you is great. And it sounds like throughout the whole process, you also had a good board of advisors you would go to for advice and suggestions. How does your team look now? Is it just you or how's the structure? No, we're, we are, we are bigger now. And, and like, it's funny this year, we're gonna, we're gonna probably um, double the number of employees that we have, which is, which is quite a milestone, I think, but it's been, there've been four of us for, for most of the last three years. Um, and uh, what I've really benefited from is that I've hired other mothers and mothers who, who are incredibly talented and, and have fantastic skills, but who don't want a 40 hour a week, nine to five job. I mean, pre COVID, like now, now everybody's working from home, but people who, who wanted to have that flexibility. And so 
I have a team that is comprised of, of people who are working 20 hour weeks and, and 30 hour weeks, but it works with their schedule. Um, and, uh, and now as we grow, we're getting a little, you know, more, more full time and more, um, more traditional, but I think offering that, uh, that flexibility was what enabled me to hire some crackerjack women over the last couple of years. That's great. Is everyone remotely? Now we are. Um, and uh, we have been, I mean, part of that is that probably because we do have children and, um, and our offices, like they turned off the heat and <laughs> it, was, it became inhospitable. Um, but we really were able to figure out a way to work remotely that is, that is um, sustainable. And, and, you know, my CFO has a four-year-old or he's now five. Um, and, and my director of sales has two, two uh, 12 year old and a 16 year old. And there's no reason why we can't do this remotely. That's great. I'm happy to do this. In fact, I hired a director of marketing just in April and she's in Texas. Uh, But it's, you know, we all figured out how to do it. And, and I think it turns out that, that it works just as well. Like I'm excited to get back to the office because there are no windows here in my basement and, and it's a little, I like, I like seeing the sunshine, but, um, but I think that we'll, we'll figure it out based on what everybody wants to do. That's true. You'd probably be the only one in the office then. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine with me. (laughs) I'm sure they'll call in zoom frequently. I'm hearing that a lot though, Sophia, a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners I'm talking with are saying that with COVID is just opened up the talent pool. They're hiring people from all over the country, even the world now. Um, and, and that's great for them. We had, we experienced exactly the same thing. And, um, and with, when we were hiring for the marketing position, I, we weren't limited by geography, which is something that I think a lot of people either from our side or from their side, conceptually, they just can't put their heads around, you know, how would I work remotely? But for this, since it wasn't a choice while we were first um, thinking about the position, it opened up. Our, the applicants we received were so impressive and, and it was nice to be able to pull from that wide of the talent pool. Yeah, that's great. What advice would you give someone if they came to you, maybe one of your children or whoever, and they said, I wanted to open a business, a startup, it doesn't have to be salad dressing or retail based. What, what would you give them? What advice? I, so I would probably give them a couple pieces of advice. One is don't quit. Like you will be tempted to quit so many times and just don't. And, and I mean, obviously if the universe is telling you to quit, like, all right, listen, listen to the universe, (laughs) but don't quit just because you meet an obstacle. Um, Because there are countless obstacles. And really, I think the only difference between the people that overcome them and and this is a generalization, but that, that people who, you know, they just didn't give up when, when perhaps they were tempted to. Um, relative to that, also say like, brace yourself. It's a long, bumpy journey. And so just don't expect that you're going to be a unicorn because they are, they are rare. And, and so just know what you're getting into as you get into it. Um, so that you're not surprised and you're not, you're not looking to be instantly successful. Um, got two more. One is find a team of people like support that can support you, give you advice and, and that are gonna be kind of your, your external uh, uh, brain trust because um, from a variety of 
different skill sets, not all relative necessarily to what you're working on exactly. Um, and then the last piece is that to like celebrate whenever you feel like celebrating. Like I used to think that, you know, it wasn't the, the where the moment is to celebrate. I thought, oh, we're going to celebrate when we get, you know, when it's on the shelf in the store and, and, you know, we're, we're seeing, seeing sales. That's, it turns out that's really anticlimactic. Like for me, the moment when the store says we want to bring in that dressing, like we loved it, we want to bring it in. That to me is my, that's, that's my dance party. And so I think that like, sometimes you're tempted, like, oh, can I celebrate yet? Can I celebrate yet? And, and you're tempted to say, no, you know, not, not yet. Hang on. Um, but I think that they're so, like you just have to seize those moments because they're never when you think they're going to be. And, um, and so like, if you're feeling it, enjoy it. Yeah, that's great. I love that. As you mentioned, there's several moments where you want to throw in the towel. You might have those dark moments. What made you persevere, Sophia, during that time? Well, sometimes I felt like I was so far in, I couldn't, I couldn't quit. And, and that, that, that would have been you know, that I would, would have really been letting myself down and letting other people down too. Um, and so, uh, so some, I mean, I think mostly actually it was that I was too far in. Um, but then also after several years of doing this, I have had dark, dark, dark days. And then the next day, like something happens that, that completely changes. Like I had, so last fall, I had a, um, just, you know, one of these, like, why am I doing this? And I had, I had such a horrible, horrible day <laughs> where I was questioning why I was doing it and, and getting pressure to like, you know, is this really the right thing for you to be doing? And, um, and the next day I got a call from a major retailer saying, we want to bring in everything. And, uh, and, you know, it's just, it's because it's it does turn around. It, it turn as long as, again, if the universe isn't telling you you're on the wrong track, like it just happens. There, there's, there's like a great moment and then there's, there's ups and downs and you yeah. just have to ride them out. And yeah. if the trend is going the right direction, then continue riding, but like enjoy the ride. <laughs> that was great news, dance party time. Yeah, we have a lot of dance parties here. We have a lot of dance parties, but it was, yeah. And I think that especially it was that much sweeter on the heels of, of uh, just like a rotten, it was a rotten night that preceded. Yeah. And that was during COVID. You said it was last year, right? Yeah, it was last August. Oh, okay. So it was pre-COVID. Okay. No, no, no. It was, it was no, last August was COVID. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Friday. Okay. But yeah, no, it was last August. And um, yeah. But it's like they can turn on a dime and, and that's, I mean, it's just happened enough times now that, that I don't kind of think of like other dark days, but, um, but really they are often short-lived. Otherwise I would have quit and we wouldn't have been having this call. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's interesting that it still happened last year and this is you doing it for how many years, but it still happens sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It does. And, um, of course. I mean, I was on the phone. So a friend of mine runs a tea company um, that is, uh, is, you know, they do 250 million in sales a year. And um, they're, 
he and I were talking the other day and he was telling me that like, he's has exactly the same problems I have with supply chain and with, with, um, uh, you know, with whether it's when you're loading into a new store and the cash flow required for that load. And he has identical problems to mine, just with several more zeros on the end of it than, than mine. And so I think in some ways it never goes away. And, um, and I say that and like, I'm thinking about tea companies, but also, we have here in town Seth Goldman, who runs another tea company, um, or who was the CEO of Honest Tea, which started in Bethesda. And and after he finished Honest Tea, he he started working at Beyond Meat, and now he's he's just launched Eat the Change. And so I think like, you know, even if you don't have those problems, you sometimes might create a new situation that's going to challenge you and is going to make you stretch yourself because. He doesn't need to do this again, but he's still doing it because I think that there's something so um, intoxicating about about the problems that are thrown at you and then coming at the solutions and, and figuring it out and, and always like having that puzzle to solve. It's 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 pretty uh, addicting. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. Are, are there any specific traits or habits that you use frequently, whether on a daily basis that you think has have helped you out personally or professionally? Um, well, I, you know what I realized like halfway in is because you could sit at your desk all day long every day and still have a to-do list that is a mile long. And, um, and so, uh, and especially with COVID when you're not leaving your, your, desk or necessarily your office in your house. Um, I am a big exerciser and I still will go out and I will go for a run and, or I'll go for a swim. And if I can get an hour a day where I am huffing and puffing and, and that is going to be, that is going to be all I need to, to get me through. I mean, I think that, that everybody has different things that they use, but for me, I have to exercise. I agree. I feel the same way there. I, I have to do it every day, seven days a week. Yeah. yeah. Well, I never, so I grew up here in DC. Like I never spent that much time in Rock Creek park and I started going there every single day. And, and I like trail running. Like I, I love it. And, um, and I started running through Rock Creek and I would just wander through and you can, you just find these trails that, that I have a little map tracker. And I think I had done 400 miles in, uh, in Rock Creek last year, but like, rarely the same same route twice i mean it's oh, just wow. incredible and so i think we have all of these things here locally where it's really easy to get get someplace and you feel like you're completely far away from from this desk yeah. <laughs> and it clears out your head and it gives you new ideas and and uh you you can you know you're just much more i feel like you're much more creative and engaged but you have to step away from time to time yeah that's needed what would you say is your biggest challenge right now with your role at the company well, so we have, um, as I said, we're growing and, and we're about to probably within a ne the next couple of months, we're going to have more new employees than old employees. And so I feel like my biggest challenge right now is to make sure that our corporate culture stays the same throughout that transition. And, and we have, um, so we're a certified B Corps, which means that we, we are following the strictest guidelines for sustainability and corporate social responsibility, which puts in place a big superstructure of, of corporate culture. Um, but I, I think that, that 
that tells a lot of people coming in who we are and what our priorities are. But I think that as you expand, it's always a challenge to make sure that that, that same, you know, that still exists, that mindset still exists. And, and kind of, you know, we're still a startup in every single way. And so bringing that startup mentality where we can't throw money is, money at a problem. We have to think about it creatively. And so, um, so always coming up with the, the kind of the, the scrappy solution rather than that. Yeah. I think is, is a challenge. I see. How, how are you doing that, especially what you're saying with the growth now and most of the team being remote as far as establishing that culture? Zoom. I mean, Zoom is, is sort of, it's great. It's, and it's almost easier in some ways because especially as I was saying, like when we have children, you know, with removing that commute and removing um, uh, the, the, like that's can be a chunk of time. Sure. And so I think that we have, we have a lot of zoom calls and we also have with zoom happy hours and, and um, we'll do, uh, you know, we all work too hard and too much not to make it fun. And so I, I think we, the, it's just as long as we can keep it like fun and we're all still relating no differently than if we were in person, um, then we can keep it going. Sure. What do you know now that you wish you would have known at the start of your business career? Um, like everything. <laughs> I didn't know a thing about food. <laughs> I, I really, I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, one of my, when I was doing television, I went to, um, so when I worked in PBS, we, we would spend a year on, on a topic. And when I moved to ABC, we shortened that time frame considerably. And one of the, one of my executive producers was like, we don't have time to learn everything here, but we have to go and ask the experts and then they can tell us. It's like, we're, you know, we have to shortcut it. And it's the same thing with, um, with dress it up. Is it like, there are a lot of things that I wasn't able to learn right away. And so I've got these people together to give me advice and and they they downloaded their their knowledge and so i i think that just keeping um i wish i'd known what they taught me but i'm really glad that they were there to teach me uh as i was as i was learning while doing sophia if you have this entrepreneur who's out there and, and they want to get that sort of board of advisor that you're mentioning gave you advice what are some suggestions they can go about finding those right people for the roles I think that you, so I, most of the people that I know, I either, like, I tap my network and, okay. and often with that question, does anybody know anybody who knows anything about the food business? And I think that was the first one. Um, but now, obviously, with, with Zoom, there are a lot of um, webinars where there are people that are, that offer advice or who can speak. And I don't do this frequently, but, but when somebody speaks on something that is directly relevant to to whatever it is that I'm going through at that moment, I reach out to them through LinkedIn and sort of introduce myself and see if they're willing to speak. And sometimes you talk to somebody and it's, it's like, you know, Q and A sure. uh, and, and that's, the, that's it, you have your call. And then other times you really develop an affinity for somebody and, and you end up making them part of your team going on. So I just sort of say, you know, don't be shy. I mean, I will, I'm a lot less shy when it comes to dress it up than I am in person. <laughs> so I think that I'm, I'm, I don't hesitate to, to ask people for advice and, um, and it always pays off. That's great. 
Um, coming to an end here, so what is the vision? What does the next five year look for you and the company? Well, I think that um, ideally we're going to get into Whole Foods nationally. That would make that make me very happy. I have a couple other target accounts that I just I'd like to see. I'd like to see dress it up in those stores, and then I really want to see. You know, we've we have had this line of of dressings for some time. Like I'm ready to expand into into a couple more dressings that are that I already have the recipes for. But um, but uh, I think my ultimate vision would be able to. Um, to have the the resources necessary to expand this to everything that I feel like it can be. I mean, we've often been limited by by either cash flow or my own bandwidth. But as my children, I've sent one off to college, another one's going in two years, and and that leaves me a lot more time to to be creative with with what dress it up can be. So. I'll figure it out, but I would love to be able to kind of realize the full vision. I like how you're also using the artistic and the creative side of things as well. I, I do too. I don't think I could do it without it. I mean, it really is my favorite part. My, my, my favorite part is whenever I get to sort of put the Excel spreadsheet aside and get out my camera. And I spent this weekend doing a, because 4th of July is coming up, um, doing a stop motion animation of, of vegetables and, uh, and turning them into fireworks. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of other things I could have possibly done with my weekend, but it was, it was so much fun. <laughs> and, and so I, I want to embrace the creative as much as I embrace the, the business side. And what I love is that this has given me the ability to do both. That's great. So when you're not busy working in the company, what do you like to do for fun? <laughs> I'm, I'm running on the trail. I, I'm, you know, I love like my el my middle son plays lacrosse and, okay. and I love watching him play lacrosse. I love my eldest is a birder. We go birding. Like I'm, I'm where my kids are and I'm, that's probably outside. So I will, I will head outside and you know, get out of my basement. That's great. Well, where can people find out more information about you and dress it up dressing? dressitupdressing.com. That is, that is the best place. <laughs> Sophia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review and comment and let me know what you think. Thank you. And I'll see you all very soon on the next episode.